Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a look at how humans have made our mark on the animals we share the planet with, from selective breeding and genetic engineering to changing the habitats and the climate. Plus, we find out how researchers are using the power of genetics to save species through conservation projects, both at home and abroad, and we meet the man who made Dolly the sheep. Before we start, a reminder to check out the new science podcast from First Create the Media and the MRC London Institute of Medical Sciences. Suffrage Science, How Women Are Changing Science, looks at the journeys of women in science and the challenges we still face through conversations with inspirational women scientific leaders. In the latest episode, I spoke with the former UK Chief Medical Officer, Dame Sally Davis, who had some strong advice for how to land your dream job. And I went in to see the boss who I'd never met before and said, I believe you might be offering me this job. I'll take it on these conditions. And if you're not offering it, why am I wasting my time here? I've never been scared of telling the truth to anyone. Um, and he said, yes, I, I now see I am going to offer it to you. What was the list? I told him and he said, done. Over the coming weeks, we'll be hearing from climate researcher Tamsin Edwards, computing legend Wendy Hall and space scientist Maggie Adderin-Pocock. So subscribe to the Suffrage Science Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. From driving species to extinction, to selectively breeding pets and farm animals, to new technologies like genetic engineering and cloning, it's impossible to ignore the impact that humans are having on life on the planet today. Helen Pilcher is a science writer and comedian whose latest book, Life Changing, explores how humans have shaped the evolutionary trajectories of the species living alongside us on the planet. You might think that this is a relatively modern phenomenon, but as Helen discovered while writing the book, our influence on animals goes back a long way. It goes back 30, 35,000 years to the very first species where we can put our finger on it and say, yeah, we actually started changing this species. So, so this story has sort of very, very ancient roots. And you may possibly at some point in this interview hear a a small whimpering or yipping or growling. That's not coming from me. That's coming from my genetically modified wolf. So I do own a genetically modified wolf. And it's the descendant of one of these very first creatures that humans modified. So the first creature that we ever modified deliberately, if you like, was the grey wolf. That's where it all starts, this whole story. 35,000 years ago humans domesticated the grey wolf and we didn't just sort of go out there and deliberately decide to change this animal Uh, but that's effectively what we did there was this sort of tightening relationship between our ancestors and this sort of apex predator and as this relationship tightened it was beneficial for both of us what we found was that these animals started to change you know they changed in terms of their body shape they changed in terms of their behavior and as the relationship became sort of even more intimate and we welcomed these wolves into our homes and with selective breeding of course in sort of like the 18th century we we started to shape these animals even more profoundly. So this genetically modified wolf who's now slumbering at my feet is now so far removed from the grey wolf that he barks at bin bags and (laughs) refuses to go out in the rain. (laughs) You start being like a mighty hunter through the forest and then you end up being a pug in a birthday hat. uh, (laughs) That 
that's evolution for you. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? That's what we've done. We did that. <laughs> and that's maybe not what we would think of when we hear the term genetically modified. You know, you think of all the stuff we have now, like CRISPR and cloning and, and all these kinds of things. But like you say, as soon as you can, humans can take two animals and put them together in a way that, you know, they can breed together or two animals that then can't breed together, you know, you are starting to selectively choose what these animals are going to look like and the characteristics that you want. I mean, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, I call my dog my genetically modified wolf, but that is exactly what he is. So he he looks and acts very differently to a wolf, but genetically he is different. So there's this tiny amount of DNA that sets him and all other dogs aside from wolves, and yet it is enough to imbue them with this vastly different suite of characteristics. And, you know, Scientists will have a very, very precise definition of what they mean by the term genetic modification. But if you take it in the broader sense and you say this is a manipulation of DNA caused by humans over time, then dogs really are genetically modified wolves. And I find it really, really interesting because when you talk to people about GM animals or GM food, you know, hackles, rays, and people have these very kind of extreme views sometimes... And I find it really interesting because if you were to say to somebody, look, I've got this friend who works in a lab and they've got this idea to make this animal and it's going to be a new kind of dog, right? And it's going to be really chunky and really hefty and it's going to have a really thick neck. Its neck's probably going to be so thick that it won't be able to be born naturally. And it's going to have all these wrinkling folds of flesh around its face. So it'll have this really cute face with a flattened nose, but probably it'll have dreadful breathing conditions. And maybe you might need to have surgery on this dog to keep it healthy, right? So if I told you that a scientist was going to create this, you'd go, whoa, bad idea. Put the brakes on now. And yet what I've just described to you is the English bulldog. And so we have created this animal, beautiful individual dogs, lovely personalities, but hugely flawed in terms of its overall design. And that's something that we created as a species through selective breeding, through choosing the characteristics, the most extreme characteristics that we like the most, getting individuals with those characteristics to breed. And then we end up with these animals that would never survive in the wild, that barely survive sometimes in a domestic setting because of the characteristics that we've given them. So, you know, we've used this genetic modification in the form of selective breeding for good, you know, in terms of all the domestic animals that we've created that manage just about to feed the population. There's another suite of problems there, but that's another story. So on the one hand, many beneficial characteristics, but on the other hand, we've created this animal welfare blind spot, if you like, where we're kind of we're prepared to overlook some of the suffering that we cause the animals that we've altered because it kind of suits our purpose. So it's a whole mixed bag, I think. I'll never forget going to a conference, I think it was a genetic society conference, where someone started their talk talking about selective breeding in cattle with a picture of a dairy cow in the 1940s. And, you know, and humans have domesticated cows for uh, 10,000 years or more. We've had dairy farming as a species. But in the 1940s, you know, it's, it's nice. It looks like a kind of a toy cow, like a, a nice, neat looking cow. And then they showed a picture of today's dairy cows and it's like this enormous udders it's like it looks like this weird super cow and there's no genetic modification in the lab of any kind it's like this has just been achieved through selective breeding over even just decades and it is a real example of the power that we have to transform species i mean it really is i mean so holstein dairy cows today 
make four times the amount of milk that they did in the 1960s. And that isn't us tinkering with CRISPR or any of the other modern molecular techniques. This is pure selected breeding with a bit of artificial insemination thrown in. This is another sort of technique that sort of rose to power, if you like. It's a way of flooding the genes of a few through the population of many. And because of this, we're seeing these domestic farm animals with really extreme behaviour. You also get some real sort of quirky behaviour and quirky looks popping up as well. One of the things that some of your listeners might like to do is is go on YouTube and Google something called the fainting goats. Have you come across fainting goats? I have come across fainting goats and they are adorable. <laughs> they are. There's something quite wrong about watching them though, isn't there? It feels a bit voyeuristic. So these <laughs> these goats, they were the first spotted on a farm in Tennessee, I think well over a century ago. And these goats, they're going about their everyday business. They're cute and adorable. And then something, anything spooks them and they go flat as it. They go really stiff, don't they? And then they fall over like you're pushing over a plank of wood. And then they lie there on the ground with their four little stiff legs sticking out And then after a minute or two, they jump back up and they're absolutely fine. And it turned out that randomly a mutation popped up in a gene that controls muscle contraction. And uh, people started selectively breeding these animals together. And farmers actually found that they quite liked the animals because they didn't have to fence their enclosures as thoroughly. Because if their goats wandered off, they'd get spooked, they'd fall over and they could pick them up and bring them back again. And so if you go on YouTube and if you Google (laughs) fainting goats... You've got all sorts of these wonderful goats, kind of like sets of music, just getting spooked and falling over. And it feels so wrong to watch them. Yet they are somehow completely adorable. Are there any other examples where humans' intervention in this kind of breeding has had maybe unintended consequences? Well, it's quite interesting. So sometimes you get mutations that crop up at random and people capitalise on this. So in parts of Africa, in South Africa in particular, trophy hunting is big business. And you have sort of the standard GNU or wildebeest, which is a sort of blacky grey colour. But every now and then you get these weird colour morphs that crop up. So they've got different coloured hides and they're a golden GNU and they crop up at random. They have this beautiful golden hind. And then people, breeders, trophy hunters, people who supply the trophy hunting business, started breeding these individuals together to create golden canoe because they thought people would pay really, really handsomely to go out and shoot them. So if you're a canoe, this isn't great, right? Because any natural camouflage that you've got has disappeared. And on top of that, you've got people looking at you down the lens of a rifle taking aim. But it's a really interesting story, actually, because it was really a case of people not doing their market research in advance because all these kind of suppliers of the trophy industry put their money on these weird colour morphs and then all these American hunters who have no morals at all when it comes to shooting a a wild animal in a reserve went hang on a minute that's not natural that's a bit weird I'm not really sure I want to kill that I want to kill a normal looking gnu so they anticipated (laughs) that the value of these animals would absolutely rock it and then it turned out that they backed a bit of a, a red herring a bit of a lame duck in the end And so now there are a lot of, apparently a lot of these weird colour morphs around on reserves in South Africa and nobody really knows quite what to do with them. Poor things. So rather than a lame duck, a a golden gnu. Yeah. We should should start saying that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And now moving on. So we've talked about the ways that humans have just used natural breeding, selective breeding, and maybe a a little helping hand uh, in the form of artificial insemination. But what about when it does come to the genetic 
modification because this is just something that seems to have exploded in recent years being able to genetically modify animals clone animals like cloning pets cloning racehorses or these kind of things how is this actually shaping species and and maybe a bit more philosophically like our idea of what we can do with with animals I think what we're seeing now sort of sticking within the realm of things that we are altering deliberately so deliberate change caused by us we're seeing tools spilling out of the lab that have been used for research purposes spilling out into commercial application so cloning for example you mentioned cloning's being used by people who want to have a copy of their pet dog made there are indeed cloned polo ponies thundering up and down the the polo fields of argentina there are working dogs in South Korea. It's actually quite routine now. There are many hundreds of copies of, of working dogs, sniffer dogs. So if you ever find yourself having your luggage sniffed at Serlinchian Airport, the chances are it's being sniffed by a, a cloned animal because they perform so well. So we're seeing cloning being used kind of like commercially. And then in terms of gene editing, we're seeing all sorts of things. So you can buy pets that have been gene edited. So there are some beautiful little tropical fish that go under the trade name of glowfish and these are you know classic little tropical fish like danios and zebrafish but they've got genes from coral and jellyfish in them so they glow all these amazing colors of the rainbow so here's extreme gm where we've taken the genes from one species and put them into another we've had genetically modified crops for a long time but the very first gm animal food stuff went on the market recently in the form of a transgenic salmon so there's a salmon uh, that's on sale in Canada that contains the added genes of not one but two different fish species and it was created because it grows much bigger much more quickly than the average salmon and consumes a lot less feed along the way And lots of big issues around this, not least of all, do people want to eat this? But you've got you've got it out there. And also, you know, really bizarre things. So um, people are looking at using genetic modification to make animals that produce maybe medicines, but also materials. So one of my favourite examples is the spider goat, which I'm sure you've come across. We, we have covered the spider goats in one of our very first episodes. So spider goats, like super briefly then, they make spider proteins in their milk. And maybe one day we could use these spider proteins to make, I don't know, cables for suspension bridges or, or panels for drones or cars. Things that sound really far out and crazy. However, conceptually... I don't have a huge problem with this because these goats are really, really super healthy. They're really well looked after. Compare that with, I don't know, the average broiler chicken. So your average sort of, you know, chicken that's been reared for meat, which has not been genetically modified in the laboratory sense of the word. It hasn't had any genes from another species added. But its accelerated growth rate means that these adult animals, if you didn't kill them at four weeks old, would struggle to stand and would probably die from from some sort of organ system failure. So you've got, you know, from an animal welfare perspective, I have huge problems with that. The spider goats, they're pretty happy from what I can see. You milk them regularly. They don't ping out a parachute or anything. They don't spin a web. We should stress that these are not (laughs) spider goats like flying out webs out of their udders. It's just the protein in the milk. Yeah. So, you know, it's quite phenomenal, really, when you think about the scope of GM. But but you can pull out these examples, right? And they are quite niche. 
and they make headlines because they're so exciting and so super interesting. But they're a drop in the ocean. One of the things that interested me in the book massively is, you know, we've sort of so far been talking about the modifications that we've made deliberately, be it through domestication or, or through CRISPR. But one of the things that I realised in the course of researching the book is actually what we're doing now is we're altering all life on Earth. So we currently now, through our action as a species collectively on the planet, we are altering the evolution. We are genetically modifying, if you like, pretty much every single living thing on Earth. Everything is changing because of our actions. And there may be some microbe deep down under the ice in Antarctica that is blissfully unaware of our actions, but I don't think this innocence will last. And so what I'm talking about here is things like climate change and habitat loss and pollution and poaching. It's changing evolution. And one of the fascinating things is that when Darwin thought about evolution all those years ago, he imagined it was this really slow process, that it happened over millennia or tens of millennia or much bigger sort of geological timeframes and that you couldn't see it happening within the human lifetime. And we realise now that that is true sometimes. But when you go through these periods of intense global change, like we are going through now, evolution speeds up. So we're beginning to see changes to the animal world around us that are happening within human lifespans. They're happening quickly. So many examples. I'm sitting here looking out in my garden and I've got a bird feeder outside of my window and it's visited by great tits. And there was a study that showed that great tits are evolving longer beaks in the UK because of their preference for feeding from bird feeders. So we're altering their evolution when we feed them. Um, in America, we're seeing cliff swallows are evolving shorter wings in response to building their nests next to busy roads. And the ones that can survive dodging in and out of the traffic whilst they're feeding are the ones that get to pass their genes on. The ones that do that best are the ones with slightly shorter wings. And the more you look around, you can pick out so many of these examples that are out there. And you realise that we're seeing change right in front of our eyes and evolution is speeding up. So I think when I started the book, I was imagining that there would be this kind of very precise, we've done this and this and this. But what I realise now is that there's this massive widespread global change. And we need to be really, really aware of that because it means we're going to have winners and losers. We're, we're losing species. They're falling through our fingers like sand. But the species that can evolve quickly, that can adapt, are changing. They're changing. So the world will look very, very different in five or 10,000 years time. And it's the scale and the pace of that change, I think, that I wasn't really aware of until I sat down and thought about it. I thought the the birds that came to my feeder now were pretty much identical to the ones that used to come to the feeder when I was a kid, but they've already changed. You know, it's it's phenomenal, the rate of change that we're seeing. Helen Pilcher and her book, Life Changing, How Humans Are Altering Life on Earth, is out now. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? As animals all over the world struggle with the impacts of human activity, such as shrinking habitats, climate change and wildlife trafficking, conservationists are doing their best to save them. 
To find out more about how genetics is being put to work to understand and preserve species in a changing world, I caught up with Alex Ball from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland's Wild Genes Programme, based at Edinburgh Zoo. So there's three main themes that we work on within the Wild Genes Lab. One of them is using genetics to look at the origin of illegally traded wildlife products or individual animals as well, if we can get samples on, just to work out potentially where captive populations have come from in the wild and where they may have been poached from as well in the case of the illegal trade. We also look at population structure of uh, remaining threatened and fragmented populations and potential gene flow between them to determine if there is still movement uh, between these populations or whether we may need to set up corridors, for example, between them. And then another key part, which many people associate with zoos, is looking at captive breeding programmes and the relatedness between individuals trying to avoid inbreeding uh, within captive populations. And so although that people often jump to that when they think about zoos and uh, genetic conservation, it's actually quite a small part of our work because a lot of programmes, especially within uh, the European Association of Zoos and Aquaria, uh, have very good management and stud books and they do record that information quite readily. So it's uh, we don't need to use genetics as much as people do think for that side of things. So let's start with the area of illegal wildlife and the movement of animals. What sort of tools and techniques are you actually using to track the illegal wildlife trade? How does it actually work? CSI Ivory. (laughs) Yeah, so one of the projects we do work with is Elephant Ivory. And there's actually quite a big database that has been built up uh, surrounding elephant populations uh, within Africa. And a huge number of samples have been identified and located in different geographic regions. However, often how it starts with conservation practitioners on the ground, uh, they come to us with a case potentially in the country. So, for example, we got a request about a bantang that had been poached and had been found in a village in a remote part of Cambodia. So bantang is a species of cattle, an endangered species of, of cow that is protected And what they wanted to know was who had potentially poached this individual. And they'd they'd located two different parts of a bantang. One was the horn and one was the carcass. And they knew who had the horn, but the carcass had been left in the forest. And they're like, is this from the same individual? Can we trace back the person who has this horn to this carcass? And really at that point, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We hadn't worked with bantang before. Uh, It was a completely new species, novel species. We hadn't developed markers or anything. And so we really couldn't take it very far. But what we try and do is once we have questions like that coming in, we then try and get those tools in place and work with different NGOs on the ground within the country to potentially, if that question comes up again, we then have the tools to do it. Because basically we need a lot of reference samples. We need a big database of samples from that species and closely related species to be able to design the markers and then answer questions like that that are really practical and on the ground and that could help with enforcement and legislation in the countries. Did you ever actually find out if it was the same Bantang? I'm afraid not. We didn't pursue that one just because we were focused. So one of our main focuses in that country is on the ivory trade. And so we really put a lot of effort into trying to sample the Asian elephant populations. And that's already a big project within the country. And so we actually haven't we haven't pursued that case and that sample. And it was re- they wanted a really fast turnaround, as you can imagine, potentially 
go into a court case. It wasn't at that point. They just wanted to see if we could do it uh, initially. And so moving from uh, bantangs and ivory and illegally traded animals, how else is the genetics work that's going on helping to understand populations that are still alive and, and you know haven't been illegally poached? What kind of work can you do? What kind of things can you understand about wild populations of animals using genetic techniques? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we do look at general ecological questions as well that may not be directly linked to conservation or the link is not completely obvious. So, for example, we do look at diet. So we use uh, genetic metabarcoding techniques to look at uh, the diet of tigers in Nepal is one project we've done. This is poop, isn't it? This is poop yes. analysis. <laughs> Metagenomics is. is poop. Yeah, so we, we sort of have a nickname. Uh, we're like the shit geneticists. <laughs> oh, sorry, I shouldn't probably say that. <laughs> I think we'll, I think it, we'll let that one go. <laughs> so you're, you're basically looking at tiger poo to see what they're eating, to see where, mm-hmm. where they've been having their dinner? Uh, yes. So in terms of that project, we are trying to work out what prey items tigers are relying on in the wild, in the wild populations. And that does, it gives us an indication of what prey items are there, but also their prey item preference, if you can combine it with field surveys for different areas. But another key thing is human wildlife conflict with tigers in Nepal. And there's potentially, they, they do prey on livestock, and that can lead to retaliation by uh, villagers and, and human communities that are in neighbouring areas to the tigers. And so one of the, the reasons we developed this protocol using captive tiger poo from the Edinburgh Zoo tigers was to inform uh, villagers or form the wider community where the tigers in that region are feeding on agricultural livestock. So, for example, goats and buffalo that are basically free ranging around these villages. They don't really keep them in pens like we would uh, over in, in Europe and the UK. Oh, wow. So the villagers are saying, I think the tigers are stealing my goats. And you can Mm -hmm. say, "Mm, they're not eating goats, actually. So not your goats. Yes, exactly. Or it can be the other other way around where it hasn't been picked up on yet. But we can sort of work out that there might be a hotspot where an, an individual is targeting agricultural livestock in the villages. And then teams can go out and basically uh, help advise the villagers on different mitigation techniques that they could put in place. Or that tiger, if we can identify that it's an individual tiger that actually has that preference, can potentially be moved to an area without those agricultural livestock close by. All right. So if, if it's got a predilection for goat, you're like, let's let's move it away <laughs> from the goats. Yeah. So we're working with lots of NGOs in the country that that's their task and their aim aim to work on that side of it. But we provide the underlying genetic data that lets them know what the tigers are eating. And moving on from what the tigers like to eat and the the kind of the wild populations in general, obviously, you know, keeping these populations relies on having a habitat and also uh, tigers falling in love and making more tiger babies. So how can we understand like what's happening with the populations? Like how are the populations in the wild doing? How do you kind of map that stuff? Yeah, so to get an idea of how successful the populations are doing in the wild. So we do... There's various techniques you can use. Obviously, we look at genetic diversity, just baseline genetic diversity across uh, genomes that we can compare between different populations. Uh, We also look back in time. So historically, to compare what the genetic diversity in present day populations, how it compares to those past populations. Have the declines led to uh, loss of genetic diversity and bottlenecks in certain populations? Can we identify which ones have undergone more serious declines than others? 
Uh, we also look at gene flow between populations. So are they still connected? So for example, we have a population on Northern rock copper penguins. So these breed in Southern uh, Atlantic and Indian oceans. Uh, and there's two sort of main breeding populations, one on like, Gough Island and Tristan da Cunha and islands in the middle of the Atlantic and then others in, in the Southern Indian Ocean. And it's really not known whether there's movement between those breeding colonies. Uh, can disease be transmitted between those colonies at all? Because some are facing serious declines because of various introduced disease. So can we use genetics to see whether there is potential of that transfer of the disease or whether if one population went extinct, would that affect in any way these populations on these other islands because there is transfer between them or not? So do you have to go to these islands in the middle of nowhere and, and catch penguins? Uh, so I'm afraid I don't I do not do that. So I'm very much oh. lab-based. <laughs> I know. Bummer. But we get, we get samples from all over the world and uh, we work with researchers at the British Antarctic Survey, for example, the RSPB who do go out uh, annually to these really remote locations. And actually, we do have a vet who is heading out. So from Edinburgh Zoo, one of our vets is heading out uh, this weekend to Gough Island to collect samples and do some work there for another project with the RSPB. Fantastic. But I mean, it's it's not just exotic animals, you know, tigers and <laughs> Antarctic penguins. Um, I know that you're also working with animals that are much closer to home because we still have endangered populations here in the UK. So what's some of the projects that are going on there? Yes, we do have uh, quite a suite of native species projects that we focus on. One of the key ones that we have input via genetics is on the wildcats project. So it's the, the last uh, remaining wild uh, felid that we have in this country and the last remaining populations are within Scotland and have been for the last few hundred years so they've really just been clinging on in this country and so it's a, a really big effort to try and protect these these few remaining wildcats. Uh, we also work on uh, lesser known species such as the pine hoverfly which is an endangered uh, insect in the Cairngorms and species like the Capicale as well, which might be well more well-known to listeners. So we work with the RSPB and Cairngorms National Park Authority on trying to protect the few remaining birds. So there have been fluctuating around a 1,000 individuals left in the wild, so oh, wow. it's not many at all. And it, it's interesting, isn't it, with, with conservation, because obviously, you know, the, the panda is an icon of conservation. Wildcats, very cute. Capicale's iconic birds. Pine hoverflies? Not not very sexy. Is it hard to persuade people that it's really important to care about these kind of overlooked, small or, or like less less sexy and cuddly species when it comes to understanding the populations and, and conserving them? Yeah, this is a really key part of our work and a really big part of our engagement as work as well, because we uh, the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland also owns Edinburgh Zoo and Highland Wildlife Park. It really gives us an opportunity to communicate with the public about these lesser known species because they come to see those big iconic species like you mentioned, the pandas. But at the same time, we can then inform them about these ones that very little is known about, even within the scientific community. But the pine hoverflies, they've hardly been seen in the wild for the last like uh, couple of decades. And so... It's really, really key that we get a better understanding of their declines and how few there are remaining. And what we can do, being part of a zoo and captive breeding programmes, we have instigated some of the breeding so we can release more of these individuals back into the wild and help boost those dwindling populations there. 
Well, as, as someone who doesn't particularly like insects, uh, you know, I, I understand it's important, <laughs> but ugh, not for me. But let, let's talk a bit more about this idea of captive breeding. So I've, I've been to a London Zoo to meet the tigers there and the person who looks after the tigers in the stud book. And it's like, it's it's like she's like the Scylla Black of tigers. It's all the matings of the Sumatran tigers and you know yeah. where they are all over the world and who's been on a, a date, um, so to speak. And it, it's just, it's fantastically detailed work that has Mm -hmm. to go on to preserve these species and to make sure that there is enough difference that these animals can survive what a changing world is going to throw at them, I guess. Exactly. That's the key reason we focus on on genetic diversity is because that is the only way that a species is going to be able to adapt with that underlying diversity that's there. We don't know which parts of that diversity are going to be important for those species in the future. So we have to maintain as much of it as we can as possible in these populations. So that's really the main goal when you have captive populations and even in wild populations with the constantly changing climates and, and the different, yeah, the different persecution and different effects that animals are facing in the wild now. It's really going to rely on them being able to adapt to it. I think that's always the thing with evolution. People say, oh, well, you know, let's look at the genes and find out what they've got. It's like, you don't know what's important. It's just that this diversity is fuel for evolution and somehow species have got to try and MacGyver their way out of what's happening to them. And if they don't have enough genetic fuel in their tank, they're really going to struggle. Yeah, that is the, that is the really fundamental point. That is really key that we don't know what genetic diversity is important. We don't know what genes they're going to need in the future and what little mutations or changes are going to be the important ones in the future. So we just need to keep as much of it as we can as possible. Alex Ball from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland's Wild Genes Project. While we've heard about some of the ways in which humans are shaping species through our actions on their environments and habitats, or through selective breeding, there are ways in which we're changing life in the laboratory, through technologies like genetic modification and cloning. And whenever you mention cloning, one of the first animals that comes to mind is Dolly the sheep. Born in 1996, she was the first mammal to be cloned from an adult cell. We've previously covered Dolly's story, and that of Ian Wilmot and Keith Campbell, the researchers who led the project that led to her birth, back in episode 23 of our first series. But there's another character in this story who tends to be overlooked, and that's the embryologist who actually carried out the cloning procedure that led to the creation of Dolly. William Ritchie, known as Bill, started his career in science in 1972 as a hands-on support worker collecting samples and measurements from sheep in an agricultural research facility in Scotland. But his life changed when a new transmitter was installed in the area, bringing young Bill a relatively new TV channel, BBC Two. BBC Two at that time had loads of, of very interesting programs to me as I was working at the farm doing most of the sort of collection of material things like collecting the different measurements that we were doing on sheep at the time so I saw all these open university programs and started an open university course and 10 years after that I actually managed to gain a, a degree from the open university and it kind of snowballed from there. Armed with his Open University degree, Bill moved to the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh, where he found an opportunity to step closer to the scientific side of things. A lot of the work I I was doing at uh, at Roslyn 
was anaesthetizing sheep to remove embryos. And because I had a little bit spare time when I had finished anaesthetizing the animals, I then started helping that particular embryologist to select the the oocytes and pick up oocytes and move them around. And um, a lot of embryology is actually moving things around and being able to find them again. You're talking about, of course, uh, an embryo, sheep embryo, about 150 microns, just about visible with the, the eye without looking through the microscope. But during that time, of course, I was gaining experience and looking through microscopes and um, hand-eye coordination, picking up these embryos and giving them to that particular embryologist. I was there maybe three or four years when I was perhaps doing a bit more of that. And uh, the equipment that was used for the microscopes and micromanipulators and microinjectors were being used at that time by a PhD student, a guy called Lawrence Smith. And as he finished his PhD, of course, the equipment was then not being used. And I was encouraged to actually start using the equipment. In actual fact, that was perhaps one of the things that kind of got me hooked. We were looking initially when I was assisting the embryologist at, uh, at Roslyn. It was looking through the microscope and seeing these golden spots of light, which were the um, the early embryos, the pronuclear embryos, and being able to pick these up and move them around. And uh, it did kind of get me hooked onto the, the whole idea of, of doing this. And it, it really just developed from there. Bill took over the embryological machinery, which was being used by the previous PhD student, Lawrence Smith, getting to grips with handcrafting and using the microscopic glass tools that were required to manipulate and inject tiny embryos. Smith had already been trying to clone sheep by putting the nucleus from a cell, which contains all the DNA, into an unfertilised egg or oocyte from which the DNA had been removed. Bill built on Smith's technical developments, setting the stage for a new scientific idea to finally come to life. During the late 1980s, scientists were starting to get more and more excited about the possibilities of using new genetic engineering tools to bring benefits for human and animal health. This was in part driven by the problem faced by people with the bleeding disorder haemophilia, who lack a particular protein that helps their blood clot. The proteins they were getting for treatment had been purified from blood donations. But unfortunately, due to a lack of effective blood screening techniques, viruses like hepatitis and HIV were coming along for the ride. So, was it possible to make a genetically modified sheep that could make this molecule instead? The idea there was that the actual protein, which was of interest, would be actually expressed in the the milk of these animals, so you could breed them, milk them, remove the protein. Sheep, of course, don't get AIDS or hepatitis, and um, this would be one way of actually producing the blood products without it going through a human and um, being extracted from the blood. Conventionally, at the time, these kinds of transgenic animals were being made by injecting small bits of DNA into an egg cell. But that wasn't enough for the Roslin team. 
in actual fact, you know, the, the, this was going to be, I suppose, a commercial product. And of course, if you want to make an animal which is identical to another, if you wanted to make the same animal with the same uh, gene modification, then the only way to actually do that would be to actually clone that animal in some way or to actually add these genes to, um, to an embryo. But um, if you use cloning, then of course all the cells in the body and that animal are the same. So it's a way of actually replicating an animal with a particular genetic modification. While many people have heard of Dolly the sheep, she wasn't actually the first successful cloned mammal, although she was the first from an adult cell. Bill first created a cloned animal in 1993, three years before Dolly, by injecting the nucleus from one of the eight or so cells in a newly fertilised embryo back into an unfertilised oocyte. But to make the idea of genetically modified animals a reality, the Roslyn team had to be able to create clones from cells that could be grown and therefore genetically manipulated in the lab. The real breakthrough came in the form of Megan and Morag, two lambs born in 1995 who Bill cloned from embryonic cells that had been grown in the lab, proving that it was possible to clone from cultured cells. In turn, Megan and Morag set the stage for the 1996 arrival of Dolly, who was cloned from an adult breast cell that had been grown in the lab. And then Polly and Molly, born in 1997, who were the first animals to be cloned from genetically modified cultured cells, finally bringing the team's original vision to fruition. My former boss, Professor Keith Campbell, he always said that Morag and Megan were the most important animals because they were the, the enabling technology. So Dolly was a bit of an aside and... Um, Polly, the following year, was really the culmination of a lot of these experiments. But we certainly knew that we could clone from an embryo which was very early. We didn't know that we could clone from adult cells at that time. It's easy enough to talk about these breakthroughs now as if they were simple or inevitable. But I was curious to know if Bill always thought that it would work. I do sometimes wonder how it worked with a process which was so so difficult in those days, especially. And uh, it's kind of a little bit easier now in that, that all these things which took so long in the past are now almost instantaneous. You can buy a lot of things, as I say, but um, it was a huge experiment, a huge organisation required to actually get oocytes at the right stage with recipient animals at the right stage and with um, with everything working. I just don't know how it actually worked. Just a huge number of people. And um, I've always said that all of these experiments, from farm staff who were handling the animals to people who were producing the cells to everyone else who, in between, people washing dishes, and everyone was very important in that. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a chain where you're only as, as good as the, the weakest link. And we were very successful because we had some very good people. While the whole team did play their part, 
Bringing Megan, Morag, Dolly, Polly and Molly to life involved hours of painstaking work for Bill, manipulating hundreds of tiny embryos down the microscope. So, did he ever get fed up? I don't think you feel frustrated. You know what's happening, you know that um, you're aiming for a particular result from an experiment. And my day was, um, was very busy. And even if I you know, spent maybe two or three, maybe four hours in a microscope, that was a very, very hard day for me. And um, as I say, ev- everyone has to, to do their job from people making medium to people injecting animals to make them superovulating. Eventually, the cloning programme at Roslyn came to an end and Bill moved on to take his embryological expertise elsewhere. And when I left Roslyn, I did go to Dubai and did some work with a camel breeding company there and and assisted them in producing the first cloned camel. Camels are very important animals in the area for racing mostly, so cloned camels racing camels were some of the things that that happened. And I travelled all over speaking about things like that, um, helping people start laboratories and all sorts of things like that. One of the the most recent ones was to actually go to Africa, to Kenya, and teach people there to carry out the the cloning technique. And we produced one of the first clones of a native breed of of animal in Kenya. And the idea behind that was, of course, to make a a transgenic animals which would be resistant to trypanosomes, the parasite that causes sleeping sickness in humans, but also causes massive loss of productivity in cattle in the sub-Saharan Africa. So, yeah, lots of little things like that. From cloning sheep to racing camels and African cows, it's clear to Bill that the development of this technology has left an indelible mark on the world. Well, I mean, if you're talking about um, the real legacy of Dolly, I think it's far more interest in stem cells. And um, I think we're now seeing things coming through now, which we might say were far more the result of the law that we broke, if you like, the one the one that said once a cell has been differentiated, it couldn't be undifferentiated. And that's what I was taught. So the fact that we found that that wasn't true, the fact that um, Yamanaka um, then discovered other ways of making stem cells, it all develops. And it's probably resulted in a lot of, of human diseases which are being looked at through the um, process of, of stem cells. And, and stem cells are the, are the real thing that um, seems to have come from, from Dolly and uh, the experiments that we carried out. Bill Ritchie. And thanks to my other guests, Alex Ball and Helen Pilcher. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the history of CRISPR. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. 
Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by the definitely not a clone, Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.